I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. Don't miss Cold's new Season 3, where I look into the unsolved disappearance of Cherie Warren, a woman last seen leaving her job at a Salt Lake City office in 1985. Police cast suspicion on Cherie's estranged husband and boyfriend, but never made any arrests or recovered Cherie's remains. Find Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie, anywhere you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Jason Comstock, and welcome to We Happy Few, the podcast that allows veterans and their families to tell their stories, stories that will cover a broad spectrum of lived experiences, from time and service to the return home and beyond. Experiences shared with the hope that all listeners will better understand the sometimes complicated lives of veterans and their families. Thank you for listening to We Happy Few. Hi, this is Amy Donaldson, and I'm the creative director here at Loudmouth Project. But today I'm taking over We Happy Few so that I can bring you the conversation I had with Major Chris Fote. Chris was an Olympian. He's actually a two-time Olympian, 2010 and 2014, and he's a silver medalist. We're going to talk about why Chris joined the U.S. Army, how he came to be a bobsledder who was both a soldier and an elite athlete, and what it was like for him to be at the 2010 Olympic Games when most of the guys he was trained with were deployed to the Middle East fighting the war on terror. So my name is Christopher Fote. I'm a captain promotable in the Army. I would be a major on 1 May, so in about three weeks. So, uh, why did you join the military? So, my dad was in the military, my grandpa was in the military, kind of a family tradition, and I always wanted to join the military uh, growing up. And got to college and went pre-med, thought that would be the smart thing to do, realized I did not really like school. So I decided to join the Army, and I enjoyed it much, much better. Okay. And at what point in your Army training did you realize uh, that, about the, the athlete program? Yeah, so I was in um, reserve, off, reserve officer training course or um, at Utah Valley University. Okay. So I was in ROTC, got invited out to a bobsled camp, and the coach was actually in the world-class athlete program and said, hey, just so, when you get your, your commission in a few months, if you want to apply for this program, you can do be a bobsledder and also be in the Army still. I said, that's a great so opportunity. you wouldn't have to choose between the two? Yes, which was fortunate because that's something I would not want to have to do. Would you have done that? Would you have tried bobsledding if it had been give up the Army? No, I would not have given up the Army to do bobsled, absolutely not. Because okay. I joined the Army before I started bobsledding. So how much um, military training did you have, or what had you done before when you went to Vancouver? Because Vancouver was your first Olympics. Yep, I'd been in the Army for about two years at that point. I'd been to my basic officer leadership course at Fort Huachuca, uh-huh. and that was about it. And I got into the World Class Athlete Program and had just done sports. So okay. I had had, like, through the training program, three years of prior to my my data before I graduated college and became an officer, I went to my course, which was five or six months long. Then I did sports for about fourteen months so leading into Vancouver. So you go to Vancouver. Yep. And where did the guys that you were in training with? They you? were in Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq. So it was pretty humbling for me at that time because I was getting letters of friends that were watching me online. Hey, you know, I just watched the opening. You know, the opening ceremonies and I just watched you walk in. I'm very proud of you. I'm here with my unit and my soldiers are all very, very proud of you. So it was kind of cool to see them all around. And also, 
you know, I was proud of what I was doing. It was unique, but I also kind of felt bad because I had a pretty cush lifestyle competing, traveling the world as a, you know, a um, semi-professional athlete, mm -hmm. and they were getting Did you shot at and <laughs> blown up and other things. Did you compare with them? Like, what are you guys eating? Here's what I'm eating. Yes, how much they're sleeping, what they're eating. And they were in foxholes, on outposts, eating um, MREs, you know, two or three times a day, getting one hot meal maybe a week. And I'm staying in hotels, getting fed and pampered. And then I went to the Olympic Games in the village, and I have all-you-can-eat buffet every day. And, you know, part of me felt a little bad about it. Okay. But their message was still very encouraging. Yeah, but did you feel like you were also representing them? I did, and that's what they all said. It was cool to have someone who'd been in their shoes, had been to a few of their trainings, had also in the military who had made that commitment to serve that was representing the United States at that level of competition. The Olympic Games is a very cool event. It's not, you know, the Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees. It's not a town. It's not a city or a state. You're representing the country. Yeah. So to have someone in the Army who fights for the country and then have someone who competes for the country was a very, very cool thing. Yeah, and so Vancouver was interesting because... Uh, your captain, your your pilot was uh, also yeah. in the low class. It was, captain, right? and it did not quite go as planned. Okay, so tell us what happened. <laughs> yeah. So, leading up to the Olympic Games, we had, there was about eight races beforehand. We were ranked third in the world. So we expected to finish top five at the Olympic Games. Um, run number two, my driver made a small mistake and put us on our heads going about 90 miles per hour. So we ended up taking, I think, 25th place was the end, and we did not compete day two. So I have all my friends watching from Korea, Afghanistan, Iraq, excited, you know, kind of bragging about me. Hey, you know, I went to school with this buddy. I went, I've competed with him. We've been through PT tests, things like that. And then I kind of felt like I had let them down. So it was kind of, it was heart-wrenching for me to realize that the Army was allowing me to do this. They're out embracing the suck, doing all these hard things, and I just completely crapped the bed. Um, but did you... Take me actually through that run because I remember talking to you about it afterwards, and it, it was emotional when it happened. I mean, it was first of all terrifying. Very emotional, yeah. So, because again, we had this build up, and I felt like I, I wanted to do well. I just had this great opportunity. My parents were there. I have four brothers, three sisters. They're all there watching me. And I come by on my head at nine miles an hour, and I just when get. You're, when you're in the sled, what are you thinking? Uh, don't let go, because if you let go, then I'd be dragged behind the sled and more I probably got more hurt than, than you know get a concussion or tear something or break something and I just you know my whole Olympic dreams had just been crushed you know as a kid you grow up wanting to win a medal and that's all you, most kids grow up playing games or you dream of, of winning a medal at that point it's just crushing knowing that it's done there's zero chance now you're going to win a medal and I think at that after the first run we were in um, sixth place I think so we were close we still had some hope there going into it then you stop, and once the burning and the, the noise, you kind of it all just kind of gets quieted down. I walked off behind kind of a van into the woods and just started crying because I just, again, I felt like I'd let my family down, my college down, the, and the, the army down, all my friends that were excited to watch me, and I, you know, that mission failed. And so uh, you said, even before you were out of the shoot, um, I'm done. Yes. I'm going, I'm going to join these guys in the foxhole and eating MREs. And yes. Did. So yeah, four months later, I went from being in Vancouver at the Olympic Games to being in, 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 uh, in, in Baghdad, Iraq. So the, it was a very drastic change. You're being a winter sport athlete to landing in, actually landed in Baghdad on July 11th. So it was like 120 degrees outside on the tarmac. If everyone's been there who's listening has been to Iraq, or if, you know, on the tarmac when you're flying in, you're wearing your 
all your kit and my first time there is so I'm carrying my three duffel bags of just so I'm just dripping in sweat it was a very Did you different experience that you had done this or were you excited? I was excited to be honest and for me especially after the failure I kind of wanted to um, get away from bobsled and kind of that the limelight and join you know my friends that were there and join and do the job that I originally joined the army for. And you were in military intelligence right? I am yep I'm, okay. I'm still in military still intelligence. In military. Okay. I am. And so uh, you're joining them and they keep asking you about it. Yes so <laughs> my your, yeah. uh, you can't get away from bobsled. No. So I helped train the Iraqi military force. So I worked with them on a, a, almost you know, four or five times a week. Then I got picked up to be the aide-de-camp for the J-2 of Iraq. So we went on, on missions to meet with high-level Iraqi uh, intelligence officials and police officials. And so when we travel, you put a plaque in the front for a general, and there were two stars. Well, in my vehicle, they put a bar for a lieutenant and put the rings behind it. So we'd go through checkpoints, and everyone's like, U.S. personnel, the, the uh, host nation, the Iraqis were like, what is that placard and why is it in your window? And they just thought it was the, they had to explain to everyone that stopped us, like, why is this in your window? Oh, we have a buddy here, we went to the Olympic Games, he's a really big deal, he's, a, he's here to speak to these people. And they just, they, they just would milk it, they thought it was the, they just laughed at it all the time. It was really funny. It's like a Z-list celebrity, but it was, it was fun. Yeah, fun for them. And uh, you didn't get in trouble for using the rings unauthorized. <laughs> I did not. I, maybe I should not mention that on this podcast. But no, I did not get in trouble. I don't think there were anyone from the no International Olympic Committee that was, or the U.S. Olympic Committee that was in Iraq at that time. <laughs> exactly. Right? Um, and so, what was it like for you to be driving? I know there's a lot of downtime yep. when you're there, a lot of boredom um, to to have them care so much about what you did and how you did it you know and it kind of helped provide me with strength again it kind of helped re-motivate me and re-ground me and again because I was at that point I was retired from the sport I'd went to one Olympic games you know I was committed to the army I wanted to do it for a career and uh when I saw how much they enjoyed it and I saw how much we got to joke around about it and we'd go to the gym together and we would race all it they everyone for some reason always wanted to race me in a foot race so we would race all the time and I always won but uh but it was just fun we had a lot of fun with it we joked around you know even afterwards when a new PSD team would, would leave country and a brand new one came in, it to kind of helped to build that camaraderie, and they really enjoyed that. It said someone from their ranks had made it to that level of competition. It kind of said it kind of motivated me to want to try again. And then there's the competitive side of you, the athlete side of you, who definitely wanted to try. Yeah, and a couple right. times, yeah, so you go meet people. My general would introduce me, hey, this is my aide de camp. He can be in the Olympics. And then he introduced me to a two or three or a four star. Like, oh, how was it? how'd it go? I was like, I took last place. And, you know, I kind of did that competitiveness. You want to have a, you know, a higher result than I had because taking 25th or 27th, I actually don't know because I don't like to talk about it, but it wasn't good. Um, And so, yeah, so I kind of wanted again to try it out in the hopes that I could get back. Because I knew that we were right there on the cusp. We had been, we'd finished top three in the world in the races leading up to the Olympic Games. I knew I had it in me to be competitive. Yeah, which was bittersweet as well. I mean, maybe you train with them. A little piece of you says we could, we should do. I that. can get there, absolutely. Because yeah. I saw it happen. I saw buddies that I trained with every single day. I knew their skills set, and I said, you know, I can get to that level and work just as hard as well. So, uh, did you make contact with the Olympic group, or did they call you and say, how did you? So I that? talked to my coaches when I was in Iraq, and I said, right, I was getting ready to come home. Yes, I think I want to at least give it one more year. And my teammate, my pilot, John Napier went to Afghanistan right after 2010. Yeah, so he returned home and he said, hey, you know what? Things did not go as well in 2010. We had kind of been re, 
invigorated by our time overseas and we kind of had a new um, uh, sense of purpose. And so we said, let's try it again. So we, so I talked to John Napier and the coach and we came back and we competed together that next year. I think this is a great time to take a break and hear from the businesses that are making this podcast possible. If you support us and what we are doing, please support them. Hi, I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Jason Lee. Listen to our free podcast, Voices of Reason, unless you enjoy screaming matches. Nope, you're not going to hear that with us. You'll hear folks who may disagree, but seek to understand different views. That's Voices of Reason on the KSL Radio app or wherever you find interesting podcasts. You thought this would be you guys going forward. You would compete with him and go to the Olympics. That was my yeah. That was our plan. But it didn't work out that way. No, John had some other plans, and he actually wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Came back and realized his love for the sport was no longer there, and so he actually ended up trying out for the Navy SEALs. Got injured doing it. Tore his hamstring. Had some screws put in, so he was disqualified from uh, further service towards that route. And he kind of decided that's not he did not want to pursue the sport after that. And so then you didn't, is that the year you won the push championship? That was the next year, yeah. So then he had left, and I realized if I want to make the Steve Holcomb's team, which was he's that pilot that won gold, I had to be the best. If you wanted to compete for a medal, you had to make his team. I did, yeah. And so uh, what did you do? So just trained like I've never trained before. I think, you know, in your life, I always thought I was training hard, I always thought I was doing things hard, but seeing what people went with when they were deployed downrange, you know, I had so many soldiers who had birthdays and their anniversaries and some of the hard things they went through overseas kind of gave me that strength and I realized what hard work is and I work for the general you know he was the the J2 so he was the um, senior intel analyst so he woke up every morning at 3 30 was at work by 5 so he had to brief the general by like 6 30 or 7 on the events that happened that night and he would work till 8 at night or even 9 o'clock at night so I saw the hours people were putting in and just across the force the things people did in a deployed environment were just amazing. So I think that whenever I was feeling tired, I didn't want to train as hard or squat that much weight or do what I know I needed to do. I think from 2011 to 2014, there was I was able to pull strength from my prior service and pull strength from my buddies and pull strength from the sacrifices I had seen people make. And it really, I think, helped make me successful. I was able to come out and win push championships. And you won the push championship. What year was that? 2013. So going into the... Olympic Games. Okay. And I set the record for the U.S. push team, which still stands today. So we'll and, see how long that stands for. And you started uh, pushing Steve's sled, right? Yeah, gone yeah. Steve Holcomb, and that season we won uh, the first seven races of the season. Mm-hmm. Between two and four man, there's 16 races total. And you we guys won. took turns, you and two men. Yep, me and Steve LinkedIn alternated, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, it was a great experience and had... In, you know, what was that like? You're winning medals like every time you race. It was amazing. It felt good, you know, because I had put the work in, and the years prior to that didn't weren't as good. You know, we, I was with some on USA two and three, and we had we did okay, but we were not winning medals. Mm-hmm. So it felt good to have that level of success and to see the hard work paid off, and to see that coming back to bobsled again was the right choice. And you get to Sochi and. <laughs> And uh, it's harrowing. So let's just go straight to gold medal day. 
uh, bobsled is two-day competition. Take us through first day, then second day. So first day, you know, Steve kind of had some problems with the track uh, leading up into the event. We were in fourth place at that point. We had the fastest push both heats the day prior. Um, we set the start records. We put ourselves in a good position, but we're still on the cusp of being on the outside looking in in fourth place. So luckily he had a great run number three. We had a great start again. Had the, the top start in uh, heat so three. You overnight to think about this, Yes, right? it was terrible. You your first two runs. Yep. And everybody in the sled but you has won a medal. Yep. Steve Holcomb had won gold and a bronze in the two-man in Sochi. Steve Langton had just won a two-man four days prior. My teammate Kurt had won a gold in 2010. So I'm the only guy in the medal. So I'm thinking if I'm the only guy that doesn't win a medal, you know, I would just feel terrible. And again, I feel like I would have been a failure. I let a lot of people down. So did not sleep much that night. Um, did you talk about it? I, yeah, we, we did. The, the brakemen did. We don't want to put undue pressure on them. But as brakemen, was, hey, tomorrow we're going to come out and we have to give them the best starts possible. Mm-hmm. And so we were very motivated and my teammates were motivated for each other you know we were very close friends i've been sliding with those guys since 2007 i've known them for a long time so we were kind of like that same camaraderie you develop in the army we've been a unit for a long time you know we had traveled together we'd lifted weights sprinted you spend nine ten months a year together as a team you're in hotel rooms so we were very very close and we were very very motivated to do the best he did he had made that commitment yes he uh, didn't want me the only person not winning. So he'd also seen the hard work I, I had put in at, at that point. So it, I think that helped the next day. Like I said, we had the fastest push to the third heat, and he drove phenomenal. Put us into third place. We moved up some time. Mm-hmm. Going, so, that, so after heat number three, we were in third place. Mm-hmm. But the Russians were fast approaching. They had gained some ground too, and they were in fourth place, not very far behind us. So what's the last run like? <laughs> so when people that are listening don't know, a bobsled, you can't, you try and get as low as possible. So I can't, there's no timing systems inside. I can't see anything. It's all by feel. So I'm in the sled, you know, we push, you get in, and you're sitting there for a minute just hoping he does not hit walls or does not crash or something bad happens. And his run was pretty good. We hit out of five and six. And so I was like, oh, I hope this, hope this is enough. The bottom of the track, he was money. He was real smooth, made all the curves. But the Russians had laid down the fastest heat up before they went off right before us we had seen their time and they'd put down a smoker um we come up the braking stretch we all pop up pulling the brakes and there's no clocks right there that tell you but we're looking way up and you see you i was looking for our coaches to be there and they're, they'll give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down and we're you know the four of us are trying to compete to see who can see the sleds bumping because you're going you know real fast trying to break that thing and i see our coaches just jumping up and down they're losing it and we knew at that moment we had won and <laughs> but uh, and just the excitement and the finally, you know, after seven years of training, after crashing, after deployment, having been through things that no one else had been through on my team and being able to represent the United States as a competitor and athlete and for, uh, through the World Cup program as a, a, a soldier was just a, a huge amount of pride. And to do it in Russia was also really, really cool. And I know you called your wife from the shoot. Yes. But were you thinking about those guys? And that time you spent there? Absolutely. I mean, I was thinking about, it's amazing how much goes through your head during those moments, that, you know. And so thinking about my friends that were still overseas, the friends that I had served with, thinking about my wife back home who was four or five months pregnant at that time with my firstborn child and being away. My family wasn't able to come because we had some issues with, you know, some questions about the security and wasn't really sure if we wanted to risk it. 
and you know just the relief that came and the, the amount of pride that I felt and able to share it with everyone and it was a awesome opportunity a once in a lifetime and have you been able to take your medal you, you got upgraded so now you're a silver medalist yes because they cheated you know? <laughs> yeah. we, knew, we knew then but yes they were um, took a long time to prove it but did you um did you take your medal or do you plan to take your medal to, to around to soldiers or do you yeah so with you? after 2014 it was great uh i got to go out and speak to a bunch of different um veterans group got to go out and visit a lot of soldiers on Fort Carson, at Fort Leavenworth, Fort Riley. I traveled around, had a chance to share with a lot of people. And then I went to Fort Hood, Texas and took command after the career course in 2015 with uh, the 1st Cavalry Division. So I was a company commander. My soldiers, I got to bring that in for um, um, org day type events. I got to show it off to the, to the brigade commander, division commander. I got to bring that to different events and got to share that with the soldiers. And again, cool thing about an Olympic medal, you, you won it for the country. It's not just from a town or a city. And the soldiers really really enjoyed when I would um, bring that out. What do you, how do you think you've changed uh, because you chose to serve in the military? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I'm sure there, your faith has something to do with building the person you are. Your family has something to do with building the person you are, and maybe sports. Uh-huh. But obviously the Army does. What? Yes, Army has shaped, I think, the service aspect of, of the Army being able to serve people every day and as a an officer in the army as you know as a, as a commander you're in charge of the welfare training of 110 soldiers you know you're you you're in charge of their leave forms their trainings if they do get deployed you're in charge of you know you have families and spouses people get married and have kids they lose people underneath your command and you're kind of helped to sh- to help shape that unit and so being able to serve people has been a huge reason why i enjoy the military but also camaraderie involved in the military is a huge piece for me i mean Every unit I've been to, you build this this teamwork. You build this team, and you build this environment where you really do care for each other almost as much as family, if not more, at, at, at some time. So I plan on being in the Army as long as they will l- let me be in. I got 11 years in now and plan on staying in for another 15, 20, 30 years. So we'll see. As long as it's interesting and exciting. Yeah, you know, there's bad days in the Army, and everyone who's listening, there's bad days, but it, there's not bad weeks. You know, I've... There's days I get home at night, I'm like, what am I doing? I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning, had PT, or got a call because one of my soldiers got arrested or got in trouble, or I'm working late in training, or it's hot, and I didn't sleep much the night before. But So there's long days, hard days, but there's not really hard weeks or hard months because overall you get reinvigorated by your soldiers, you get reinvigorated by the mission that you're doing, and you get, you get to see the good and the change and the effect that you're having around the world. If you or any veteran you know is feeling self-destructive or suicidal, please don't hesitate to use the Veterans Crisis Line by either calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1 or by texting 838-255 or by visiting www.veteranscrisisline.net. This 24-7 confidential service is for all veterans, all service members, the National Guard and Reserve, their family members, and their friends. Join us again for the next episode of We Happy Few. If you have comments about the show, please contact us by email at tips at loudmouthproject.com or on Twitter at loudmouthjason. Check out our website at loudmouthproject.com and navigate to the We Happy Few page. You can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast on Google Podcast, iTunes, and other places where you find interesting shows. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback and it helps grow our audience. 
We would like to thank our producer and editor, Josh Tilton, and our creative director, Amy Donaldson, for adding the spit and polish to our show. I'm Jason Comstock, and until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and stay engaged. We Happy Few is a production of the Loudmouth Project.